Today on the podcast, we have Matt O'B, who is the senior product designer, and we have Jack Clark, who's a software engineer from Nearform. Thanks. Uh, take thanks. it away. No, thanks, David. So would you like to tell us about your vision for enabling apps for disability? Um, speaking from my own personal experience, I'm a, a child of disabled parents. So I grew up with um, a house that had lots of adaptions and things in it. Um, we had a talking microwave. We had light switches that had labels on them. So I think really I've carried that forward into my career. So um, over the last few years, I've always worked in roles. Uh, I've worked as a designer of different flavors. I've worked as a developer and I've worked as a tester. And I've tried to kind of move around those areas. And they all tend to intersect. And that kind of sweet spot in the middle of all those roles is where you find accessibility most of the time. It's that combination of the technical and the, and the design side of things. So that's what I've decided to focus on. And um, yeah, whenever we get the opportunity, we try and, um, and deliver products that really kind of push that as much as we can to make them as inclusive and easy to use for as many people as possible. And we try to, of course, educate our clients along the way and, and help them uh, really achieve the best product that they can. So let me just get that right. You're building accessibility in from the very outset of the products, or are you adding accessibility to a designed system or service? Um, in my experience, um, through working on multiple projects, it's always easier to build accessibility in from the start than it is to, to kind of bolt it on as an afterthought. So that means considering accessibility in the design phase, content creation, building it into the foundations of your project, um, with automated tooling, manual testing, it really would set you up for success and, and is, is a much easier, if you treat it as an afterthought, come up with a, a product that's almost ready for release, ready to launch, and then you decide to make sure it's accessible. That often results in wholesale changes that either delay a product or, or unfortunately may even mean that a, a project um, doesn't meet accessibility conformance, um, which is something that, that nobody wants. So really, really starts at the, at the planning phase to make sure it's accessible getting the right people on the team, engaging with the right uh, third-party experts, making sure our tooling and, and everything is in place from the beginning is, is definitely the right approach for us. And it works, and it works. You mentioned tooling. Um, so in terms of tooling, I think we, what I'm talking about is tooling right through from the design uh, to the development part of the lifecycle. So our design teams would use plugins in, in their design tools uh, to check color contrasts, color blindness simulators, color palette generators, that kind of thing. And then through to development, when we're actually implementing applications and websites, there are automated accessibility scanners, which will, for example, check your HTML for, for semantic issues and check your, um, check your UI for common patterns that are easy to automate. Um, but it isn't possible to, to automate everything. There is always a, an aspect of manual testing involved. But if you automate as much as possible, a lot of the things that are kind of monotonous for a, for a human to check, it frees your team up to do more exploratory and more kind of user experience style accessibility testing with that time. But automated testing is a big thing that we try and put in um, into all of our UI tests, linters, that kind of thing. And then when we're actually testing manually as well, using contrast checkers on the web or, or in the applications, using screen readers, magnifiers, changing all of the accessibility settings on, on, the, on iOS and Android to test things with large, large font, small font, that kind of thing. Um, so really all of the tools that we can, there are a huge suite of them and it sometimes depends on, on a case-by-case -case basis which ones we use for, for a given test, but um, we really use everything we possibly can to try and make sure that we're building as, as robust and bulletproof accessible products as, as possible. 
does that constrain the product development pipeline? Does it mean features that seem great that are going to produce value just don't make it because they don't fit in? They can't be made accessible. Um, I think as long as as long as it's being considered throughout. I mean, inevitably that does happen sometimes. There may be a feature that's ready to land. We submit it for code review. At which point we would run these automated tools against our, against our new feature. So, for example, I'm I'm working on a new feature for the COVID app. Every single feature that we build, we put into code review, which means our, our, our engineering peers and our designers will, will have a look at what we've submitted, maybe test the new feature out. At this point, we will run our automated checks. And inevitably, sometimes it will pick things up and slow that process down um, because we'll, we'll identify an accessibility issue or something that we have to fix. But doing it iteratively and in this way, having to fix a small issue when you when you release a new feature tends to balance itself out and be a more efficient process than shipping, 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 testing it at the end and thinking, oh no, we need to redesign, fully redesign three or four screens here because we didn't consider it at the beginning. So I think making sure it's there an integral part of your process in every iteration eventually evens itself out to, to be a more efficient process than, than trying to do it at the end. And that's why we try and use tools at every phase um, of the development lifecycle to, to make sure we're not missing anything. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, the, the lazier you leave accessibility in the process, the harder it is to come up with an elegant solution. It always ends up with a thing that's kind of bolted on awkwardly at the end and it really stands out. Or you have to compromise and not include features because you can't find a solution that late in the process. So that's why we really need to think about it, as, as Jack says, right at the beginning of the project. Yeah. Matt, on that idea of uh, sharing the knowledge of uh, what the tools should be doing or how to how how to use them um a big part of your role might must be educating your own developers definitely yeah it's it's still surprising these days um people come out of education or from from junior roles and they don't necessarily have a sort of baseline level of accessibility that we'd, we'd hope they would have so um quite a lot of our time is spent demonstrating actually how easy it is to do if you just think about the basics so taking them back to thinking about just html and really reinforcing their knowledge of semantic HTML, get that real basic foundation right. And if you do that, you actually solve most of the problems or you avoid most of the problems just by writing really nice HTML as a foundation. So um, a lot of time is spent doing that. And then, yes, sharing people um, or pointing people in the direction of tools that we think are useful. Um, there are lots of tools available for accessibility. They do similar things. They work in slightly different ways. Um, some people prefer one over the other. So um, we like to give people options uh, of tools to play with and, and find one that really fits their workflow and their, their style of working. So when you're talking about the semantic uh, support available in HTML, uh, which uh, is is there built in, you're talking about alt text and other kind of add-on, additional, what people would view as unnecessary extra work. Exactly that, yeah. And you know, HTML as it comes is really accessible. It's got lots of accessibility features in uh, built in, along with the stuff that's built into a browser. And it's only when we try and do clever things that we tend to break things and we tend to include or add barriers to our work. Um, so sometimes developers will want to. The classic example is the button, right? So they want to create a button that looks a particular way. So um, HTML has a button element within it that you could use. And that comes ready built with uh, roles that tell assistive technology like screen readers that I'm a button, I behave like a button, so it'll be announced properly. Um, and it comes with all that stuff built into it without you having to do anything. You get it for free, essentially. But often developers will reach for, say, a div, and they'll style that div to look like a button. They might give it a shadow, rounded corners and things. 
Um, so it looks like a button, but it doesn't really behave like a button. And then they'll have to add a layer of JavaScript on top of that to make it behave a bit like a button. Um, but then they've got to remember to add all that stuff that they would have got for free. They've got to add it back in so that it's announced properly to assistive technologies and to make it accessible by the keyboard. So a lot of the time we create extra work for ourselves and we introduce accessibility problems at the same time. So wherever possible, just use the stuff that comes with HTML and style that instead. So the aspiration some people have to sort of reinvent the look and feel of a website, for example, can actually be just a, a laborious, unnecessary kind of icing. It's it's not actually adding value. It's just eye candy, I suppose. It can yeah. be, yeah. Although it's, it's, it's totally a valid aim to do that. Um, there are just easier ways to do that without reinventing everything every time. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, I think one of the the most powerful things of the web and HTML is that it's incredibly flexible. Like a, a browser will render what looks like a visually um, functional website, even though the, the underlying HTML and the foundations of that application aren't necessarily um, perfect or, or written in the best way. So I think that's really flexible. It allows a lot of people to get into web development and it allows a lot of people to, to build websites that look good to a visually able user. But, um, the, the kind of the, the negative side to it is that the the, the core well-written semantics of HTML that already solve a lot of accessibility problems, like Matt says, are often overlooked and, um, and aren't necessarily put in there because they don't have to be because you can make a, a website that seems to, seems to work to somebody like you and me, but uh, it doesn't work for a, a screen reader. So I think that flexibility of the web and, and what makes it so great is sometimes a, a hindrance to itself. When you, in terms of accessibility. You've, in a sense, differentiated yourselves in the past by developing a cool tech infrastructure. Accessibility must kind of act as a, uh, a leveler, in a sense. Does, can you differentiate yourselves? We have to conform to, to certain standards to, to meet accessibility, but those underlying um, kind of standards in HTML are very, very flexible as well. And they don't hold you back and very too much too often and I think that um, you know breaking conventions too much on the internet and and trying to reinvent the wheel too far actually breaks convention user experience anyway a lot of people are uh, are used to using websites in a certain way they're used to using native apps in a certain way navigating through screens in a certain way and trying to um, be too clever and come up with our own patterns isn't necessarily the right way to do it in terms of user experience or accessibility anyway. So, Matt, point out some of the no-go things, no-go features that really should be avoided when you're you're designing uh, an interface. I don't know if there's anything you should avoid as such. There are normally ways to achieve what you want to achieve in an accessible way. Um, but the really common things are uh, building forms without labeling them properly, which means that if you're using a screen reader, the screen reader won't announce the names of the fields as you're moving through the form. So you'll know you're in, you're in a form field, but you won't know what you're being asked for. That's one of those things that's really trivial to get right, but it's also really easy to get wrong. Missing alt text, I think was mentioned before. That's a really common one. So images without a text alternative, which makes them essentially completely invisible to someone who's who can't see. Animation can be a problem. Sometimes people get a bit carried away with animation and they'll animate everything and they won't provide a way to disable those animations. Um, that can be a problem. Occasionally screen readers and assistive technology, but also people with um, cognitive disorders uh, that can be easily dis distracted um, by those things and things like epilepsy, um, depending on the, the rate of flashing and things like that. Um, so that's an area to be careful. But most things, you don't need to avoid things. You just need to think about how you're doing it and make sure you test it and you think about 
the diverse ways in which people might need to use your your products. An example might be a combo box or a selection box that's three levels into a form. Yes, a keyboard accessibility is the main one that we need to get right. So if your website's accessible to a keyboard, it's accessible to someone who relies a visually impaired person who uses a screen reader or someone who uses a braille display or someone who's using voice controls to speak commands that relies on keyboard navigation as well. Um, or perhaps you'll use someone who has reduced mobility and you're relying on um, sip and puff controls to move forward and backwards or, or switches that you're activating with your head. All of those things really rely on keyboard um, functionality or keyboard emulation to some degree. So yeah. keyboard is really important to get right, yeah. So the keyboard functionality is a sort of, that's what we see when we use tab a lot on a web page. Even a visual uh, user will see that, won't they? Are there golden rules for how many elements to have? Because it can be really painful tabbing to get to the, that last point that you wanted, that control. It can be definitely. There's not a rule on the number as such, but um, so as long as you're using, this comes back to semantics, actually, if you're using HTML properly and you're using features like headings, there are features in assistive technology that you jump from heading to heading so you can skip out sections of a page and navigate that way. For other keyboard users, um, we include things like skip links, which are hidden links that are only visible um, when you reach them on the keyboard. That will let you jump or let you bypass sections of the page, perhaps the header that you don't need to hear on every page. That will let you jump past that on the keyboard and get straight to the main content that you want. Page structuring like that is really important to let people jump around in a more natural way using the keyboard. As an able user, I suppose I might um, think it's tedious to tab 10 times, but I suppose uh, with practice that becomes almost reflexive and you develop that sort of quick click navigation sort of reflexes yeah much like a, a sighted user like you and i will probably scan a page really quickly to find what we're looking for if you ever listen to a screen reader user um listen to how, how quickly they have their speech set it's really hard for for us to understand because it speaks so quickly because they're used to it um they can really take in the information really quickly and jump around really efficiently as long as we build the page properly that lets you know in a way that lets them do that and I think um, touching on the keyboard accessibility thing, so something we'll try and do when we're building websites is, is use the, the whole page with just a keyboard without using the mouse at all. And while that may be seen as, as like a, an accessibility requirement, what we're actually doing is we're making the site easier to use for everybody. So by trying to put accessibility in, um, we're actually improving the, the UX for everyone because it may not be somebody that has to use a keyboard that benefits from this, it might be somebody that just doesn't want to reach for their mouse at that moment, or it might be somebody, you know, that's holding a child in one arm and decides that they want to tap through the form with their keyboard. So by usually what we find is by being as, as complete as possible with our accessibility conformance, the general user experience of the site it improves for everybody. And that's really what it is to, to build kind of inclusive products. And, and we see the benefits beyond just um, for those users of assistive technology. We've got a question there on security and data privacy being a concern. In terms of how users appear from a data perspective, is it possible to differentiate between someone who's using accessibility uh, versus somebody who's using the screen visually of an app or a service? Um, so on the, it, it, it differs. When we're talking about the web, um, it's really, really hard to know whether a user is using assistive technology um, and um, that's why we can't make any decisions in, a, in our code to say, like, we, we only show this feature for somebody on a screen reader because it's just not known to us. We don't have that knowledge. When you're building native apps, um, like the COVID apps, for example, you have a few more hooks into the operating system. So you are able to know um, 
the font size, the, the font size settings on the device, whether a screen reader is currently enabled or disabled, that kind of thing. Um, you're able to plug into those features in the operating system and make, de- and make decisions based on those. But generally, I think it's, it's pretty controversial to, to change the experience of a site um, based on these settings. And, and we try and stay away from that as, as much as possible. Just try and make that core experience um, page that we've built um, just work for everybody, basically. What we don't want to do is create silos and put people into those separate boxes and create different experiences for them. Um, that's quite an old technique that used to happen a lot in accessibility. We build a website, realize it's not accessible, and then build a sort of uh, an easier or um, a less complete version over here that's more compliant. Um, we really don't want to do that. We want to create an experience that's inclusive of everyone these days. And of course, that would be a design nightmare, maintaining two, three silo designs from each other that get out of sync. Exactly that. And the user experience really degrades over time because you, ex- you forget about the one that you built over there. It doesn't keep up with the main one. So you don't really want that, that tech there either for that reason. And in terms of how the design presents, it's leaving it to the user's configuration to determine how it appears. Yeah, exactly. And um, a number of the, the guidelines that we follow um, are all about that. They're about building a website that does adapt to the preferences of the user. Um, the latest guidelines, for example, um, say that you have to support, you have to build a responsive website. If it's not, it's not conformant to accessibility standards because it needs to allow that flexibility. Uh, and for rotation, because you need to think about one of the newer guidelines that was added to accessibility um, is the requirement to support um, the rotation of devices or rather for people who have got a device in a fixed orientation, perhaps on a wheelchair, they might have their mobile fixed in the landscape. Um, so therefore we can't force our website or our app to only support portrait. We need to support both orientations and not force them to uh, change the orientation because it wouldn't be easy for them to do that. So, um, yeah, responding to the preferences of the user is more and more important. I had never thought of that. And thank you for re- opening my eyes. Um, a permanently landscape smartphone. And it's obvious, really, when you think of it as a, a mounted device uh, on, on the arm of a, a wheelchair. On the issue of configuring, so let's say you can't anticipate the way, the multiple ways people are going to configure their devices, can you? No. Definitely not. And, it, and it's often, uh, I mean, that's where using real users is, is really there's no substitute for it. I mean, we can do as much as we can in terms of accessibility testing. We can conform to semantics. We can pass accessibility conformance checks. There really is no substitute from speaking to real users of assistive technology. That's like in the design phase, in user groups, in prototyping and that kind of stuff. And it's getting real users of assistive technology to to use our, our final polished products and give us feedback on that because you can make a you can make an application or a website that ticks all the boxes and and conforms to accessibility guidelines but that doesn't necessarily mean we've built a good experience for those users um so i think talking to these real users and getting their real feedback is is kind of that next level that that ux for for um assistive technology is is what we aim for there's only so much as designers and developers we can be expected to know accessibility is a huge field in itself and there are experts industry experts out there for a reason so we try to engage with um with experts like ncbi um and Pasiello group when we were when we worked on the uh, new york app to really make sure and do a full in-depth review um, and they will use real users at that stage to make sure that um we've really uh, we've not missed anything so they were involved so we made sure that we didn't release it to any users before we got their green light basically I think that is really important. We can't be expected as a development team to to know everything. We'll try and engage with third-party experts in those cases to make sure that it is. 
they're going to give you feedback and you need to act on that feedback. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, it means your release deadlines, there'll always be that question mark. And I think you, you've bought into the idea that this takes time and it's worth spending the extra time to respond and address those issues. Yeah, and it comes down to setting expectations. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the planning phase of the product, setting expectations with clients, um, obviously always an expectation that public-facing applications will, will be accessible. Setting the expectations that we won't be comfortable releasing this unless we know it's accessible from the beginning usually helps there. Like with any building any software, you can only estimate it so uh, so far. There are, there are, are going to be bumps along the road usually, but that's why we try and make the, the process as efficient as possible, checking in all the time to make sure that we're not missing things so that it's not a surprise when we get three months down the line and we realize we've missed a month's worth of accessibility work here. So, And in doing so, you're, you're reaching out to the different communities, these specialist communities, and you have an ongoing relationship and dialogue with them. Say so the accessibility community actually is really good at sharing knowledge. You know, it's, there are lots of meetups and, and conferences and things and, and uh, podcasts and all sorts of things around accessibility. And um, there are certain people that you know to go to and listen to because they are um, they know what they're talking about. But there's a massive community of people just sharing um, experiences with each other and, and yeah, calling out problems in, in, in each other's work as well is really useful um, because we can all improve each other's stuff. Privacy is a big thing. Um, how does a, a, a blind user um, ensure privacy of their device? They're able to operate devices without using the visual interface, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of blind people will have the screen turned off for privacy or just because they don't need to have the screen turned on. Um, so they can save battery, of course. Um, so there's a thing on iPhone, I think it's called screen curtain that will switch off the screen. Um, so all the touch inputs will still work and you'll still get the voice feedback, but you don't have that that, that visual um uh, display if you look at a braille device uh, a refreshable braille display that a blind person might use they sometimes have a small screen on them but they're mostly just uh, braille so um, if you can read braille over someone's shoulder then you might be able to see what they're doing and voice is voice activation and voice control how is voice working out yeah so voice output has been very popular for a number of years of course it's really important for screen readers blind people using those voice input i think is less common a lot of people with reduced mobility will use things like switches and the, and the sip and puff type things that I mentioned earlier. But we do have to consider voice for the wider inclusive design approach to things because there might be people who are driving, for example, who can't use physical controls. So we really want to support voice input as well for all sorts of reasons. It's really important. So quite a, in a sense, a new area. And of course, the voice assistants themselves are undergoing radical changes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those uh, work out. I think the voice um, assistants, so Siri, are reasonably popular on those devices. And Alexa is particularly popular in the visually impaired community, I believe. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on those, how they develop. What accessibility features would be most overlooked on a website or an app? So for me, I see if Jack agrees. I think for me, it probably came down to headings, actually. Headings, if you look at the surveys of Visually impaired people, again, in particular, they often cite headings as being an, a common problem, but something that's really important because, as I mentioned earlier, they can jump from heading to heading from section to section. So they're important for understanding the structure of the page, but they're also important for navigation. And, of course, they're important for SEO as well. So headings, are, I think, are really important. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that comes back down to the semantic part of it. Visually, you can make a heading look like a heading on, in the web with CSS by styling any text element to look like a heading. That visual hierarchy is there. A visually able user can see the, the hierarchy of the document. But because we've missed out the, the semantics and used the proper heading levels in HTML, a screen reader user doesn't get that same hierarchy. So it's not as easy for them to scan the page to see the different sections on the page, what's actually on this page. Um, 
And as Matt said, I think a recent survey said 60% plus of, of screen reader users, the first thing they'll do when they open a web page is open up that heading, those heading levels. So if you've got a website that's marked up without any, first thing they do is they open that up and they really don't know the shape of the content on that page at all. So that's definitely something that I've, I've seen is overlooked too. And I think for people that haven't got experience with using screen readers, a lot of the kind of area attributes that, that are there to help screen readers are overlooked because people just don't think to use screen readers at all when, when on the website or even really know they exist. Quite often when helping junior developers and things like that and letting them know that they've actually got voiceover on their Mac, they've got narrator on Windows, they think that um, a screen reader is this kind of proprietary expensive tool that, 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 that they don't have accessible to themselves. It's actually built into their platform and the operating system they're using. So anyone on a Mac can press command F5 and they've got a screen reader opened up in voiceover and they can play around with it. And I think that's kind of blows people's minds sometimes that they didn't even know that existed to play around with. So simple things like that, getting people to start using it and build empathy, start to help um, in that education piece and, and get people passionate about fixing these things. It's actually interesting you, you mentioned empathy there. Do you, would you think that near form is somewhat of an industry leader in terms of um, how they're taking on this approach to accessibility? Or would you say that it's commonplace among the, the, the software? software for- um, I'd like to say it's commonplace, but I mean, the current state of the web, web aim, web accessibility in mind that do like a yearly survey of the top thousand websites. And they find that 98% or 99% of the internet actually is inaccessible, basically, or has accessibility violations on these pages. So the, the state of the internet as a whole isn't great. Um, I, I can't really comment on, on how other agencies are, are approaching it, but I know that as an industry and, and as an internet, there, there's a long way to go to make the whole thing accessible. I do really think talks like this, podcasts like this, Donald Talks blogging, that kind of thing, building passion in people is, is the right way to go about changing that. Is there any legislative provisions, either in, in either Ireland or, or England, that, that state you must have? you know, some, some kind of accessibility for, for visually impaired people or, or audio impaired people? Is there anything like that at all? Or is it all just voluntary? Um, there absolutely is, yeah, in most countries. So certainly in the UK and in, and in Europe, uh, so in Ireland as well. So our, Europe has recently introduced some new legislation that applies to public services, so government services and, and some large charities and things like that. And they've said that websites need to be accessible um, and apps as well need to be accessible. I think the end date for that was has just gone or is coming up now, might be March of this year. And that says that those public sites have to conform to a specific level of uh, the WCAG guidelines, which is AA. Um, so that's the new benchmark, really. And that's actually been a really common benchmark level, AA of WCAG. Um, that's cited in um, US legislation as well as the target you should be aiming for. And the UK aims for AA conformance as well to WCAG. So uh, I think that's really the, the kind of the standard that everyone's aiming for, either in legislation or just because that's the sort of de facto what you should be doing. Just mentioned that the WCAG is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines as well for anybody that doesn't know. Kind of like the go-to standard for, um, for digital accessibility, as Matt says. Well, it's great to, to hear uh, an organization taking such care in developing and maintaining the relationship with your client and also the vast audience of, of users who use the app and addressing all of their needs. Just want to say thank you for, for having us. It's been great to talk to, to people that are passionate about this too. I'd echo that. Thanks for your time. It's really nice to speak to students in particular who are going into um, new roles who can take this sort of information and kind of, kind of spread it around and spread the word about accessibility. To learn about this earlier, use it in the new roles that you go into.